Well, good morning. Uh, Richard said during the week that he was going to put me on early today, which gives me license for more than uh, 20 minutes. And then, uh, do you know it's free cost? Do you know it's free car parking in Bridge North today? So nobody's got to go running back to uh, get their cars either. So we could spend a lot of time together. I hope nobody actually paid for their car park today. It's not happening, John. It's not happening. He was doing a bit of this last time you spoke. Not last time. It was when that strange thing was we'll get a different lead, just in case. Is he? Oh, dear, dear. You, you caught a glimpse of the man on the screen anyway. And... Uh, He's, he's a beef eater or a yeoman warder from the Tower of uh, London. And uh, Richard was praying that God might put new words in my mouth this morning, uh, words maybe that I hadn't prepared. And as I was walking the dog this morning, this word came to me, uh, and it was this. Can you have a vegetarian beef eater? <laughs> I, just, I, I, I just wondered, is, is eating beef a qualification for the job of being a beef eater? What about a vegan? I have no idea. It's just one of those things. Maybe there's an answer to that. But why? Richard's really confused as to why when I'm talking about the church being commissioned in our series about the New Testament church to help us to be the church now and into the future. Why have I got this gentleman on the screen? Well, let me tell you. Some years ago, I had the privilege of being at a reception in the Tower of London. And we were able, at the end of that reception, to witness what's known as the Ceremony of the Keys. Has anybody been there and seen that? Their marks being one or two of hands I see. The Ceremony of the Keys takes place in the Tower of London every night just before 10 o'clock. And, and here's what happens. The, the yeoman warder, the beef eater, walks forward with his little entourage and his set of keys, and a sentry says, Halt! Who comes there? And the chief warder says, The Keys! And the sentry says, whose keys? And the chief warder says, Queen Elizabeth's keys. And the sentry says, pass, Queen Elizabeth's keys, all's well. Uh, and why have I put this on the screen this morning? Why am I sharing this with you? Just for this simple uh, piece of information, that those carrying the keys pass with the highest authority, the authority of the monarch herself. Uh, and it just struck me, if in that ancient ceremony, the name of the monarch is enough to have the authority to let the keys go past and lock up the Tower of London for the night, how much more is the authority that is vested in the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Is it still messing about with me? Lucy thought she'd fixed it. Lucy thought she'd fixed it, okay. That was just my punchline that Richard killed there, you know, so let me say it again. <laughs> How much more authority is vested in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords himself? However, sometimes in earthly ways, authority is limited. Perhaps you've been to a conference and you've won a lanyard with a pass allowing access to certain parts of the conference complex. Just 30 years ago, I was one of the organizers of a big Baptist Youth World Conference in Glasgow when we had 7,500 delegates from all around the world, and I had a pass that said, access all areas. I had authority as one of the organizers wearing that pass to go 
anywhere in the Glasgow uh, Scottish Exhibition and Conference Centre. I could go front of house, I could go backstage, I could go in the offices, I could go everywhere. I had access all areas, but not everybody did. Jesus assures his 11 disciples, some of whom are still doubting, even after spending three years with him, witnessing his death and resurrection, Jesus assures them that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority, not partial authority. I have access all areas in this universe. I have all access, all areas in this planet. I have access, all areas in your lives. All authority. His authority isn't limited. His authority is greater than the authority of any earthly sovereign because he's king of kings and lord of all. And it's worth getting excited about that again. But as the church of Jesus Christ, we go under his authority. Mike referred to the Great Commission, which is the name which historically has been given to this passage of Scripture. The Great Commission, we are commissioned by the highest authority available as the church of Jesus Christ. Therefore, when we're commissioned to be the church, we shouldn't be afraid, we shouldn't be apologetic, we shouldn't be allowing others to intimidate us. We can be confident because we operate under the highest authority authority. I'm glad Richard prayed for the events taking place in our country this this week, and we really need to do that. But I take some comfort in the fact that God has the highest authority. In a debate that's about sovereignty, the highest authority, the sovereignty is with our God. If you want to pray intelligently about the, the vote this week, what's happening in our country. Former colleague of mine, Martin Eden, has written a little booklet for Premier Christian Radio. If you go to their website, you'll be able to download it for free. And it's very, very sensible, very, very balanced, very, very scriptural and uh, worth reading. That's by the by. This series is about the church, and here's the first point. The church is under the authority of Christ. He's the head of the church, and he is in charge. Our church at Western Supermer had a car park, but we also had to use a lot of on-street parking. And from time to time, the neighbors got hostile. And when I say hostile, I mean hostile. They would come angrily to our door, and they'd ask, who's in charge here? Now, this was particularly difficult during a funeral or a wedding service. Who's in charge? Because they wanted cars moved from blocking their driveways. Or one particular family wanted a car moved from the disabled space across the road from our church, where they, which they thought was theirs and theirs alone. But it begs the question, who's in charge of Bridge North Baptist Church? It's a great question. Who's in charge of Bridge North Baptist Church? Is it the trustees? Is it the elders? Is it the pastor? Is it major donors? Ruth and I were talking at breakfast this morning and she was recounting a situation where a particular church was held to ransom in some way by the major donors, the major givers or the perceived major givers to that church and people didn't want to upset them because if they took their ball home then it was alleged that the church would collapse. Who's in charge? Perhaps we think it's the people who've been here the longest, who often argue, but we've always done it that way. You may or may not know that in Baptist tradition and understanding, the church members' meeting calls the shots. 
But the idealistic vision of the church members' meeting was that there, the mind of Christ would be discerned. In other words, Christ calls the shots. Jesus Christ is the head of the church and Lord of all. He's head of the universal church comprising Christian believers of every race and nation. He's rightfully head of every local expression of church. Who calls the shots? Jesus and him alone because it is his church. Jesus said, I will build whose church? I will build my church, said Jesus. And on the basis of his authority, Jesus commissions his church, represented on this occasion by a core group of 11 disciples. Now this passage, Matthew 28, particularly verse 19 and 20, as we've said, is widely known as the Great Commission. It's fulfilled, a, it's fueled a worldwide missionary movement based on the words, go and make disciples of all nations. Acts 1.8 helpfully reminds us that all nations doesn't mean every nation but your own. Back in Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives, just before he ascends into heaven, Jesus tells his disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. In other words, right here where you are for us in Bridge North or whatever outlying village we happen to live in. In Judea, the wider area, Shropshire, if you like. In Samaria, the Jews and the Samaritans didn't get on. Samaria, the places where you're not normally welcome. I hesitate to identify such an area for you, although I do remember some of the tradesmen who came to our house to help us when we were doing our alterations and came from out of town told us that historically such tradesmen had to come in a plain white van when they were coming into Bridge North or they might get more than a little aggro. An American friend of mine confessed that he grew up thinking the verse said, you will be my witnesses in some area. He didn't quite get Samaria, but that sounds good. And to the ends of the earth, that is part of the commission of the church. And if God says to you, he wants you to go to Thailand, Nepal, or Timbuktu, you better say yes, and hopefully we'll back you. Popular call to mission goes like this. Jesus commands us to go, but listen. Greek scholars tell us that grammatically, go is not the command in the Great Commission. The command in the Great Commission is actually make disciples. Make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them to obey. These are the how. Go isn't a command, but an assumption. The verse assumes that they are going. The verse assumes the church is on the move. Jesus expects us to be going because church is a living organism. Church is not an organization. Our commission as church is participation in a movement, not preservation of a monument. And we can see as we go, as we go in the widest possible sense. Richard helped us with that a little bit at the beginning of the service, that we're church when we're outside here, just as much as we're church, when we're inside here, as we go about our daily life, as we go to college, as we go to the office, as we go to the workshop, to the hospital, to the gym, to the choir, as church, we are to be missional, involved in the process of making disciples. And we can't discharge our commission by proxy. 
In a, a recent interview with Premier Christian Radio, Jackie Pullinger, the straight-talking veteran missionary to the Forbidden City in Hong Kong, challenges the church to stop living vicariously through her and get on with the job. Stop franchising missionary work to people like her. Take personal responsibility is what she was saying. Harsh words. And yet she's got a point because we cannot fulfill the Great Commission by proxy. Yes, we might say a group from our church and others offers prayer and healing on the streets on Saturday mornings. Therefore, we're a missional church fulfilling the Great Commission. No, that's only part of it. Each one of us, as we go about our daily life as a missionary, is a missionary commissioned to make disciples. As we go, as we go, and unless we sit at home all day, as we go, we're missionaries. As we go, our task, along with others, is to make disciples, is to be involved in growing Christ's church. I don't want to disenfranchise those who, for health reasons or whatever, sit at home all day. I, I just remember a lady called Mrs. Elliot in our church in Glasgow. Her son-in-law was my barber. I had sponsored haircuts in Glasgow and I never paid him a penny for what he did and probably it wasn't worth it. Anyway, but anyway, <laughs> Mrs. Elliot's job was to come down from the flat up above with a brush and brush up the hairs from the ground in the shop and uh, give the old men who were sitting in the queue there a load of grief. But as I got to know Mrs. Elliot, who most people had written up as that little old lady with the brush in the shop, brushing up the hairs, I discovered that she had the most wonderful ministry from her own house. And it was a worldwide ministry because she and her late husband had given hospitality to students from the Bible Training Institute in Glasgow, as it was then known. And she kept in touch with them through many, many years. And she was praying for them. She was writing to them. She was missional from her own living room. But most of us aren't confined to barracks like that. And it's as we go, we are to be missional. Now, the church is a disciple-making body. Go as you go. Make disciples. What does that mean? Jesus took 12 men on a three-year discipleship program in which basically they did life together. They observed his life. They absorbed his teaching. They fulfilled practical assignments which took them out of their comfort zones. They were allowed to make mistakes. They were allowed to experience failure and disappointment, as well as moments of highest ecstasy. I think the point I want to make is this. Jesus' disciples cannot just sit and learn. They must walk and follow. And that's where Emily was taking us in the worship session this morning, following Jesus. And so the question is, to what extent do we consider Bridge North Baptist Church to be a disciple-making body? Because until we have the sense in our minds and understand what it is that God's calling us to do, we won't actually be doing it. What is your involvement in church? Why are you involved in church? Is your involvement because you enjoy worship music? Is it because you like to hear preaching? No, don't snigger. Some people do. That you like to meet like-minded people? 
Is it because you feel a sense of belonging? Nothing wrong with any of these things, and they may be means to an end, but the major business of the church is disciple-making because that's what the Lord of the church has commissioned us to do, to make disciples who in turn make disciples, who in turn make disciples, and so the process goes on and on. So I want to ask you this morning, we're still near the beginning of a year, and are you up in 2019 for being facilitated in discipleship, indeed in disciple-making, for being encouraged, enabled, and released in the exercise of your God-given gifts as part of his mission. That's a fundamental part of what it is to be church. As you go, said Jesus, make disciples. And by implication, the church is a growing body. What do we do when we've made disciples? We baptize them. The implication, the expectation is that people will follow Jesus. They'll become part of the Christian community and we're to baptize them. How many times do we need to say it? Baptism isn't an optional extra. It's not a prize for those who've qualified in living the Christian life. It's not something to strive for. It's not something to attain. Baptism is an initiation rite which follows on from believing and in this passage precedes teaching. This commission anticipates church growth. It anticipates there will be new disciples. It anticipates that that baptistry will be open over and over and over again as we baptize new disciples. On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people responded to the preaching of the gospel. Then they were baptized and added to the church. And growth is a sign of health. Growth is a derivative. Concentrate your efforts on growth and you may well be disappointed, but focus on the health of the church and growth is to be expected as a result. The church is an organism and healthy organisms grow. It's a very interesting part of the church's commission. I don't think it's a side track here, but it's something I've never really stopped and thought about in this particular context. Because often over the years when we've heard people talk about the Great Commission, the concentration has been on the go, the missionary call to all nations, and sometimes we will use this as justification for baptizing uh, believers. But Jesus actually implies here, makes clear that the church which he's commissioning, the church which he's building, I will build my church, is a Trinitarian church, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is the first time in the New Testament that these three persons are brought together so clearly in one place. And with these words from Jesus, the church is inescapably Trinitarian. I need to say that actually truth matters and doctrine matters. But what does Trinitarian mean? One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We'll never truly get our heads around this, but look at this and uh, just think about this for a moment. The Father is God, but the Father is not the Son. The Son is God, but the Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God, but the Holy Spirit is not the Father. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we baptize in the triune name of God. The church of Jesus Christ is Trinitarian. Other religious groups in our society are not Trinitarian. For example, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, neither group recognizes Jesus as God, neither group recognizes the Holy Spirit as God. 
does the distinction matter? If we don't recognize Jesus as God, then we've no business worshiping him. And yet he's worthy of our worship. He receives our worship. He delights in our worship. This passage opened with a reference to some of the 11 disciples worshiping Jesus. And he didn't say, hey, stop that boy, he's not me. Paul and Silas, or was it Paul and Paul and Barnabas did that later when people tried to treat them as gods. They said, no, we're ordinary guys. But Jesus, he received worship due to a divine being. He declares that all authority is given to him. Surely only God has all authority in heaven and on earth. And once we acknowledge that Jesus is God, our understanding of the status of the Holy Spirit as a member of the Trinity falls into place. John Farron, I think a few weeks ago, explained this quite recently. Speaking of the Holy Spirit who the Father was to pour out, Jesus described him as another one just like us. Was it not you, John? It was you. I couldn't see your face, but I could see what you said then. Because the Holy Spirit is a divine person, we can have a relationship with him. The Holy Spirit is a he and not an it. He's not an impersonal force like electricity or the wind. He's the person who enables us to be more like Jesus. So the church is Trinitarian. Non-Trinitarian groups may seem like churches, but by definition, they cannot be so. They are not necessarily bad people. They are simply misled. They're part of the mission field into which we're called to make disciples. Here's another point about the church that's being commissioned in this passage. The church is a teaching body, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, not just information to be absorbed and stored, but instructions to be carried out. When I was in Sunday school in Liverpool, I took part in an annual scripture exam. Does anybody else remember being subjected? Oh, we've got it all over the place here. I know Janet Charbles tells me she was too. And we competed against other Sunday schools in our area for prizes. And we were so competitive in our Sunday school that we were often the winners. But what do I remember from those exams over a number of years learning Subjects for the scripture exam. One thing I remember was that Moses went to the backside of the desert. <laughs> Why wouldn't a 10-year-old boy who's never grown up remember that? The other thing I learned was this, that the people of Israel had to oust the Hittites, Hivites, Jebusites, and Perizzites before they would live in the promised land. How did this help me to live as a Christian? <laughs> I have to say not at all. In fact, I have evidence which I'm prepared to share with you publicly for the first time today. <laughs> to my shame, I remember how on one occasion, one year, we had a mock exam before the scripture exam, and my friend and I conspired to deliberately put wrong answers to every question. And my mum's friend, Ethel, who was preparing us for the exam, was reduced to tears, and I had to go and apologize to her. <laughs> Some years later, 
I was responsible for running a national, Scotland that is, mastermind competition for an organization called Christian Endeavor. We experienced so many arguments over answers, especially when different Bible versions said slightly different things, that we eventually prescribed a Bible quiz book with answers and indicated that all questions would be taken from that book, with the only answers allowed the answers found in the book. What did those kids learn about Christian living? (laughs) Zilch, zero, nothing. The evangelist of the Victorian age, D.L. Moody said, the Bible isn't given for our information, but for our transformation. Jesus said, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. So what did Jesus command his disciples? He summarizes his teaching in what's become known as the great commandment. Matthew 22, Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Rick Warren, author of The Purpose Driven Church and The Purpose Driven Life has this catchphrase, a great commitment to the great commission and the great commandment will grow a great church. Jesus said, a new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Notice that nowhere with one noticeable exception is it recorded that Jesus taught rules for the organization of church. He taught them principles. What's the noticeable exception? Communion, do this in remembrance of me. But there's no manual of rules and regulations which says for a church to be a church, you have to have a membership and the commissions of membership are these. For a church to be a church, you have to have the following leadership structure and decisions will be made in this particular way. For a church to be a church, communion must be observed every Sunday or twice a year as the Church of Scotland celebrates it. You must use a certain kind of bread, a certain kind of wine from a certain kind of cup. It's not there. Granted, in the book of Acts and in the epistles, there are some directions as to how to behave in certain situations that are descriptions of the character required of those in leadership, but even there is there is no prescriptive set of rules and regulations that are descriptions of various leadership styles. But for those things which Jesus has clearly commanded, the great commandment, love one another as I've loved you and so on, don't just recite them, don't just memorize them, don't just use them as answers to quiz questions. Observe them. Here's a final point about the church in this commission as the church of Jesus Christ is commissioned by the head of the church and Lord of all Jesus the church is an accompanied body and surely I am with you always even to the end of the age now there's been a difference of opinion over the years as to whether this statement is conditional or unconditional those who believe it's conditional will argue along these lines no low without Go, reflecting the King James Version language, lo, I am with you always. But is that the character of God, that he's only with us when we do what he says? Or is the character of God something rather different? Does he withdraw his presence from us when we step out of line? We maybe think he does. 
Isn't he the God who said to Joshua, I will never leave you nor forsake you? Isn't he the God whose promise is repeated in the epistle to the Hebrews, I will never leave you or forsake you? Isn't Jesus the one who was called Emmanuel, which means God is with us? Don't the New Testament epistles tell us that individually and collectively we are temples of the Holy Spirit? As Christians, we are never left bereft. God is with us in good times and in bad. God is with us when we're obedient and even when we're running away from us. I think it was Mark was praying. Somebody prayed about, uh, I think it was Tim, prayed from the psalm about God seeing us and finding us when we're everywhere, though we go to the depths of the sea. He knows where we are. Not in that judgmental policeman catching us way. He knows where we are and he loves us. And he doesn't want us to be alone. This isn't conditional on our commitment, on our Bible knowledge, on our success rate. This is part of the deal of being church. Surely, says Jesus to 11 disciples, the embryonic church, surely I am with you even to the end of the age. So where does this leave us this morning? It leaves us with a call to be the church. Not just as we gather together, but as we're dispersed throughout the community, throughout the week. As we go, we're to make disciples under the authority of Christ, the head of the church and Lord of all, and accompanied by him. For surely he is with us, even to the end of the age. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the authority that is in the person and indeed in the name of Jesus, your Son. We thank you that all authority has been given to him. We thank you that it's his church and not our church. And therefore, when we go as church in his name, we go with his authority. Help us to be bold. Help us to be confident. And we thank you too that as we go, and even when we're disobedient, that you are with us. Jesus is with us. Even to the end of the age. Always. What part of always are we struggling with? I will be with you always. Even to the end of the age. So we go. Accompanied. We go under the highest authority. And as we go, as church together, as church individually, we are to make disciples. Help us to do that, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.